everybody, and welcome to another episode of Colored Red. I'm your host, Laura, and this is a podcast that's all about Colorado true crime. Um, sorry for the delay in this episode for one day. I just had a little bit of technical difficulty with the hosting site, but hopefully this will get up tonight for you guys. Um, today I have an historical murder case, and instead of going way back to the 1800s or early 1900s, today we're looking at a case from 1957. You might be wondering what exactly my parameters are for a historical case, and honestly, I don't really have any. Any older case that doesn't have a ton of information is just fair game for me in this. This case stood out to me because, for starters, it's unsolved, and it's also been reopened by investigators as of 2013, because what they have is this old photograph of an unknown man that they believe is a person of interest who might have some answers or be involved in the case and they need help identifying him just in case he's actually still alive. Um, more about that in a little bit, but I will have a picture of this man, this picture that they want to identify up on the Instagram page for anyone to look at as well as other images associated with this case. And that Instagram is at Colored Red Podcast. So head on there. It's all just images associated with cases and um, updates about when I'm going to be releasing episodes and stuff like that. So this is the murder of Nora Lois Kersey. So we're going back to June 19th, 1957. Nora, who went by Lois, so I'll be calling her Lois from here on out, drove her 11-year-old daughter to a birthday party on Delaware Street in Inglewood, Colorado. They arrived roughly around 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon to this party. One of the other mothers at the party mentioned that she had forgotten to get birthday napkins, and I'm not entirely sure what this is referring to, maybe some special themed napkins for this party. And Lois began to insist that she be the one to go to a nearby store and pick some up. So within 15 minutes of arriving at the party, Lois walked back out after leaving her daughter there, walked to her gray 1950 Hudson and drove away, never to be seen alive by any of her loved ones again. Lois was 30 years old at this time, and she had four children ranging from ages 2 to 14. Descriptions were published describing her clothing that day. She was in a pink blouse and a gray, pink, and white full-length skirt. She carried a white purse and wore white pumps. She didn't carry a ton of money with her, just enough for small groceries, and she usually carried less than $10 because groceries just weren't even that expensive back then. So by 8 p.m. that night, her daughter is back at home, and Lois's husband, Harold Corsi, and her brother, Jack Loftus, begin driving around looking for her. A week later, on June 27, 1957, a Thursday, Lois's car was found abandoned at East Colfax Avenue in Elm Street. The police bring Harold Kersey, her husband, in for questioning, and he told police that the reason that they gave it time and waited to look for her is because they say Lois has this habit of taking off and spending time to herself quite often. In fact, Harold even says that his wife has bouts of amnesia, as he calls them. He also brings up the observation that on this particular day, his wife wasn't carrying any cash at all, only her checkbook. And no check ever cleared the bank, so she never made it to the store to buy these party napkins. Harold was immediately made a suspect. 
And on the Tuesday after they found the car, a rancher named Earl Woodhouse was walking along a ridge at 5 p.m., about 200 feet south of the Jefferson County Highway 124 in Deer Creek Canyon, when he noticed that unmistakable pungent odor. He then discovered Lois's body in what appeared to be a makeshift grave nearly 34 miles from where her car was abandoned. Someone had apparently laid her there and then piled rocks loosely on top of her body in some sort of makeshift grave. The police were able to piece together that she had been beaten with rocks about 50 feet away and then dragged to this grave site merely based on the blood pools and the drag marks that still remained at this site. The deputy coroner arrived with Harold in tow, who identified her clothing. And here's this grim and strange detail. He identified her teeth. Do you guys think that you could identify your loved one's teeth by looking at them? Maybe she had some weird dental work done. I'm not sure how that was possible, but he identified her teeth. The autopsy then verified that she had been bludgeoned with rocks and her skull was crushed. Harold Kersey was arrested, and a Denver Post article from that time mentions that it was for, quote, safekeeping. The chief sheriff's investigator named Lou Hawley uh, told reporter that Harold would be undergoing a series of lie detector tests, but after five of these tests, the results were inconclusive. Investigators returned to the site and I'm not sure why they didn't see this before. They found Lois's white purse and wallet about 100 feet away. The wallet had been partially burned, maybe in some attempt to hide her identity. So for whatever reason, her family seemed almost resigned to something like this happening to Lois. Her own mother was even quoted as saying, Oh Lord, I was afraid something like this might happen. I don't know what to think. Which is just a really strange thing to say about your daughter getting murdered. Lois's first husband, a man named Melvin Grape, came out of the woodworks and told reporters that Lois would often throw tantrums and that twice she ripped the shirt off of his own back, as if giving some indication that this behavior got her into the situation of being bludgeoned to death by rocks. He also said that Lois would leave sometimes for days at a time just to be by herself. Melvin Grape said that he married Lois very young and that after World War II, they didn't get along too well, which I've heard is actually fairly common for couples who get married during war or other times when there's this common distraction going on. They get with each other afterwards, things slow down, and they realize they hate each other. So Harold, Lois's current husband, then told authorities that Lois had blamed the failed marriage on Melvin Grape. So it's just back and forth about who blames who about the failed marriages. So on July 11th, there was this new development, because this was going nowhere. Two waitresses named Doris Wright and Billy Day from an Inglewood lounge that is now closed called Roxy's, which was located at the corner of Hamden and Santa Fe, told investigators that they saw Lois at the bar that day with the man who was not Harold Corsi nor Melvin Grape. They said she had been getting real comfortable with this man in a corner booth, but neither waitress could give really good details about what this man looked like other than his race and his hair color, and he was just some white guy. So this lounge, it was only eight blocks from the home where the birthday party was going on, and the two waitresses also told authorities that the day after Lois was in there, Harold Corsi had come by with a picture of his wife asking if they had seen her. So it would appear that Harold was a little bit more familiar with his wife's lifestyle, 
and was doing his own side investigation and not telling police about what he was doing. He told a reporter at this time that he didn't care if she was with another man. He just wanted to know if she was all right when he went into the bar looking for her the day after she was missing. Reporters now uncovered the details that Lois had either been raped or had sex immediately prior to being murdered. Details about Lois's life as a wife started to slowly emerge. It seemed to be common knowledge that she had what was described at the time, this nymphomaniac tendencies, and that she was a serial cheater. Not that cheating will ever be okay from any party or ever was, but in this day and age, a woman sleeping around on her husband was just the worst possible thing that a woman could be doing. And one would think that this is a perfect motive for her husband, but oddly enough, he seemed to take all of this in stride, and he knew about it, and he was just living with it. The fact that he took it upon himself to seek out his wife after she went missing tells me he really didn't know where she was, and I also think he was trying to protect her and his reputations by not telling the police about her infidelity and barfly tendencies. Harold then told reporters that he took responsibility for his wife's death because, quote, if I had done the right thing, my wife would probably be here right now because he knew she had been sleeping around for the past weeks prior to the murder. He then revealed that they had actually been moving from city to city for the past five years because of Lois's infidelities. Having lived in El Paso, Texas, Sacramento, California, White Sands, New Mexico, Holbrook, Arizona, and Chicago. And all the moving was at the request of Lois, says Harold. So this family is just moving all over the United States to sort of outrun Lois being a nymphomaniac or something like that. Harold told reporters that uh, sex was probably the motive for the crime and that, quote, she deserved a man better than I. And if my wife ran around with someone else, I'm at fault. So at this time, investigators find this black book of numbers and men's names at their house, and it belonged to Lois, and there's men in it, and they interviewed many of them, and investigators cleared Harold Corsi and Melvin Grape, and were said to be focusing on one man in particular. Around this time, Bud McCauley, another investigator on the case, got a call from someone threatening to kill him saying, if you don't quit sticking your nose into someone else's business, you're going to get knocked off. So their unnamed high suspect was cleared, that they didn't say who it was. But a year later, investigators looked into an Inglewood insurance agent named Randolph C. Montgomery, who was charged with killing a 24-year-old waitress, Jean Bear, in a similar brutal fashion, but no connection could be made between these cases. And as recently as 2013, this picture has surfaced that investigators are looking into for this case. They have not revealed how they got the picture, but they're saying that the man in it is a high person of interest in the case, and they're looking for anyone who might know who he is. So again, that photo will be on Instagram along with some other pictures, and that's at Colored Red Podcast. And just to let you guys know, I do have a Patreon page now, and just donating $1 a day will get you a sticker and a handmade card personally from me. And I do appreciate that because I'll be using that to get you guys some more merch and get more stuff in the works for you guys this year. 
Um, and that Patreon is Colored Red Podcast. So thanks, guys. I'm going to have a brand new investigatorial case at the end of this month. And I hope you guys are enjoying the show. Until next time. Mm-hmm.